0: Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Every Wednesday, we discuss all things dogs, from health and veterinary care to training and behavior science. Follow us and join Good Dog's mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them.
1: Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Michael Delgado, your host for today's Good Dog Pod. Today, our guest is Clara Wilson. She is a final year PhD researcher at Queen's University, Belfast, where she investigates odor cues associated with human physiological states and health conditions using applied canine olfaction. That means what do dogs smell? She has a Bachelor's of Science in Psychology and a Master's of Science in Applied Animal Behavior and Welfare, and her specific research interests are medical assistance and biodetection dog behavior, applications, and welfare. She has a four-year-old red Labrador, Eddie, who decided early on that the working life was not for him, and now he spends most of his time napping on the sofa. That sounds really good right now. Clara recently published a manuscript with her collaborators titled, Dogs Can Discriminate Between Human Baseline and Psychological Stress Condition Odors. This study got coverage in the Washington Post, Smithsonian Magazine, People Magazine, NPR, the BBC, the Wall Street Journal, and just about every other news source out there, you probably saw a headline about it yourself. And I always like to hear about a study right from the source. So we invited Clara here today to tell us about her research. Clara, welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Oh, Why don't we first start talking about you a little bit? Like, how did you end up studying dogs' amazing olfactory capabilities for your PhD?
0: Yeah, so I was always super interested in animals. But when I was little, it kind of felt like the only route if you wanted to do stuff with animals was to be a vet. And at a young age, I wasn't super into the maths and the sciences. So I kind of gave up on that idea. But I was really interested in behavior. And the most obvious route from the classes that were available at to me at the time was to do human behavior. So I went to do an undergraduate in psychology, but I was really lucky that one of the elective modules that we could take was animal cognition. And that's where I kind of learned about this whole field of research that I just wasn't even aware (laughs) existed before that. And I was very lucky to have an amazing lecturer, Dr. Karen McComb, who does a lot of stuff on domestic animals and communication. And she kind of took me under my wing there. And I started off actually on research with domestic horses, but I always had a research interest in dogs, especially working dogs. That's also partly to do with the fact that my grandfather is blind. He's been blind since the age of 18. And he has always had a guide dog for as long as I can remember. So seeing that partnership growing up was also, I think, really influential in wanting to potentially look into that relationship more closely. So from there, I went to do a master's in animal behavior and welfare so I could really hone in on this aspect specifically and got to do some work with medical detection dogs, which is a charity in the UK that trains biodetection and medical assistance dogs. And really, as soon as I did that, I knew that that was kind of my research area and my niche. And that led me then to do the PhD that I've just done at Queen's University, Belfast on canine olfaction and behavior.
1: Nice. And as we were just chatting about before the show, you will be doing your postdoc at Penn. So you'll be continuing to work with dogs, which is fantastic. I love hearing kind of the personal piece as well about your grandfather. So that's really cool. Okay, well, let's lay the groundwork so you can tell us about your study. To do so, we have to talk about the stress response in humans. Can you briefly explain the biopsychosocial model of stress?
0: Yes. So this is kind of a theoretical model. It's very well used in the literature. It's well-defined and validated kind of model of stress. But it offers an understanding into the way that a person's psychological experience of stress may coincide with the physiological potential biomarkers of stress. So it describes two distinctive states. And in the model, it's called challenge and threat. But we also can describe these as either positive stress or negative stress. So positive stress would be the challenge and negative stress would be the threat. And under this model, a person must first be motivated to engage in a task. So that kind of just describes something that we already are familiar with. If you don't really care about an outcome, you probably won't feel stressed about it. But if you care about how something goes, then you're likely to maybe experience stress in response to how this task is going. But what differentiates the challenge or the threat is how you perceive your ability to do the task. So if you think that the task demands a lot from you, but you have the resources to do it, then you're going to experience challenge. Or if the task, if it has low demands and you can do it, then you'll experience challenge. But the key is if you think that you don't have the resources to complete something, that's when you're going to experience threat. And the cool thing about this model is it does allow for people to experience the exact same task in different ways, depending on their self-perception. And that maps well onto what we experience in real life. So people's experience of stress has been defined through other types of experiments as reflecting kind of their perception of themselves within the wider setting. So this model, that's kind of the psychological component. And then these two outcomes also have distinctive biomarkers. So that's what's cool is that they've been able to show through many, many studies validating this, that when you experience challenge, you get what's called an SAM response or a sympathetic adrenal medullary axis response. Only <laughs> the HPA or the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis isn't activated under challenge. So there's a slight difference there. They both increase your heart rate. But only threat also produces an increase in blood pressure. So it's a little bit involved in the physiological side. But the main thing is, is that these two things can be differentiated through these measures. You don't ever want to measure stress necessarily just through physiology, because also the person's experience is still a key component. So you always kind of want to ask a person how they perceived something to be. But having these measures of heart rate and blood pressure can also really help to validate and try and define like what type of stress someone is having.
1: Cool. So yeah, not all stress is the same, and it's not all handled the same by the body. Yeah. Okay. So now bringing in the dogs, what changes in humans did we already know that dogs could detect? using their amazing sense of smell. So to
0: preface this, I'm going to have to talk a little bit more science and acronyms (laughs) just so that we can understand what's underpinning all of this. So basically, processes within the human body produce these volatile organic compounds or VOCs. And these are compounds that are emitted from the body. They have a high vapor pressure and they're gaseous at room temperature. So basically, we're just emitting all of these compounds all the time without even realizing it. In fact, breath is estimated to have around 4,000 VOCs in. So importantly, what we've been discovering over the last kind of couple of decades is that this profile of VOCs that we're emitting changes depending on certain factors. So it changes, for example, due to our age, our diet, our metabolism, but also if we're ill or experiencing a certain type of disease. So the current theory is that dogs, because they have this incredible sense of smell, are actually able to detect these VOCE changes. And that's kind of what underpins this whole research field. And a lot of the conditions that dogs have been able to detect are things like epilepsy, hyperglycemia and hyperglycemia, so low and high blood glucose levels for people with diabetes but also more widespread diseases like different types of cancer, lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer, to name a few, and also more recently things like COVID-19. So it's all the same premise that these different fluctuations either caused by a disease or these internal factors are changing the profile that we're emitting and that dogs can smell this.
1: I don't know what's more fascinating that we're emitting all of these VOCs or that dogs can detect changes and then they're both kind of mind-blowing. Yeah, pretty cool. So I know when I read your research paper, you mentioned a previous study that had found that dogs respond differently to the fear sweat of a stranger. And one of the reasons that you wanted to do your study was you do research, you know, there's always something more that should be done. You're always contributing one piece of a puzzle. So there's always something that. it was lacking something and not to diss on the fear sweat study but what was it about that study that you wanted to improve on in your research
0: yeah so I think you make a really good point I definitely wanted to say that too we're answering kind of a similar question but from quite diverse angles so the key thing about this previous study which is a strength is that it was trying to measure dogs kind of initial reaction to these smells without any training And my study fundamentally wasn't trying to do that. So again, they have their own strengths and weaknesses. The only issue with this type of design where we just show a dog a smell and kind of see what happens is that we kind of are lacking a lot of the control side and the study design controls that I wanted to implement in my own design. So, for example, in this previous study, they didn't measure any physiological assessments from the participants. So the participants watched different types of video clips and then rated how they'd found it. And that's good Mm -hmm. for that psychological component that we were talking about earlier. But we didn't have any information on whether the dogs were actually picking up on a measurable physiological change because we just didn't have any physiological data. So that was one thing that I really wanted to implement in my study design was getting both the psychological and the physiological data, because then I could, for example, exclude participants who weren't meeting the criteria of a specific Mm. response.
1: Okay. Like their heart rate wasn't going up high enough or something?
0: And we can get onto that when we talk about the study in more detail. But I wanted to make sure that we were keeping it kind of within this premise of there is a metabolic change happening in the body and that is producing the VOCs that the dogs are likely detecting. The second part of the previous study, which, again, wasn't as important for the way that they designed it, but I think is important to consider, is that they collected the samples from the people over one week apart. And that kind of increases the likelihood that we're introducing other confounding odors, such as the time of day, whether they'd eaten different foods that day, medication changes, and those kinds of things. And finally, the dogs were in the room with a stranger, but it wasn't the person who had provided the sample and the owner. And so we've now got three different human odors in the room. We don't have control for how the two people present were feeling. And it's quite an unusual situation to have like a third person's odor, but they're not there. So they did find that dogs Seem to be producing more stress-indicative behaviors when they were around the fear sweat. So I think that that's really interesting and really cool. And that's the part that my study wasn't looking at, is like how do dogs actually maybe interpret this smell? But I think because that kind of study is almost skipping the step of actually proving that they can smell something, it's almost taking that for granted. Assuming. Yeah, I really wanted to just like look at that very first step of like, can dogs actually smell this? And then it kind of adds more. I think it supports these previous studies because it's like saying, okay, well, there was maybe some controls missing there. I've covered those controls in my study. So I think the studies kind of support each other in their own ways, but they're coming at it from two different angles.
1: Which I think is always like a cool part about science is when you can do things a little bit differently, but come to similar conclusions, which I think at this point there's been enough research to say that yes, dogs are amazing <laughs> and their sense of smell is amazing. So tell me about a biodetection paradigm and why you'd use it for this kind of research. Sure. So
0: here I'm using biodetection just to refer to dogs looking at samples in a lineup. And by lineup, it's usually kind of these discrete ports that usually hold human odor samples in them either collected on cotton balls, or if it was a study using blood plasma, you might have actual droplets of blood. We were looking at breath and sweat, so we collected sweat on gauze that was then breathed on, but it doesn't necessarily matter what type of sample it is, it's this presentation. So a lineup usually denotes that the samples are just in a line and a scent wheel would just mean that the odors are presented in a circular shape, but they're kind of all doing similar things. And these dogs, rather than aiding a person directly, so they're very distinct from our medical alert or medical assistance dogs who are also using their sense of smell to detect human odors, but are then going to do something about that by assisting a person, for example, collecting a blood testing kit for someone with diabetes. These dogs wouldn't necessarily ever be interacting with humans, but they're telling us more about human health and human conditions by measuring their responses to these samples in the lineup. So we can train them on this specific paradigm and we get really clear answers because we literally teach them to tell us which sample they're interpreting
1: is correct.
0: We can get a lot of information on how they're interpreting those odors.
1: Okay, because they're not responding to like the person's like yeah. physical signs of stress or anything. They're only responding to the smell. Because the person's not there. Exactly. Okay. The person is not there. And the way we would do that is we
0: collect sample from different people. And again, the specifics of that really depend on the study design. But one sample will be denoted as like the target odor. And that's what the dog is looking for. And we teach the dogs to do a trained final response or an alert behavior. In the laboratory, it's usually a stand and freeze over the sample or a sit with the nose on, ideally, or even a lie down. We choose these passive alerts because a dog barking incessantly at the correct sample could be pretty loud in the laboratory. So these passive alerts are preferred. And the alert needs to be really clear because for these kinds of studies, we want to be doing them double blind, which means that no one in the room knows where it is so that the dog can't be picking up on any handle cues. But the trade-off for that is that the dog's alert has to be very, very clear <laughs> because a person who's naive to the location of the target needs to be able to relay that information. So the dogs are searching this lineup. One odor will be the target odor, and then we can kind of tweak that Premise to answer lots of different questions about human diseases and human smells.
1: Okay, cool. So now let's talk about your study. Can you just briefly walk us through your methods and what you were hoping to find out? And yeah, just how did you do it?
0: Yeah, so we wanted to kind of combine the premise of biodetection with kind of olfactory acuity paradigm. So testing how good dogs are at smelling things. And the reason why it's a slight mashup is that normally for these biodetection paradigms, people are trying to teach the dog a general odor. And to do that, they give them lots and lots of examples. So for example, if I was trying to teach dog the odor of cancer from real patients, Person A sample is going to smell very different from person B sample, but not necessarily because the dog is picking up on the fact that someone has cancer. They are two completely different people. You know, they're going to be different ages. They have different diets. They have different lifestyles. So to get the dog to learn that it's the cancer that's relevant, you have to show them many, 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 many examples. And that's kind of the traditional biodetection paradigm. You give them a bunch of examples and eventually they can pick out the common thread. But this paradigm is slightly different because it was more like a quasi matched to sample task. And that was because we really wanted to just see if dogs could smell the difference between two things. We were limited in the ability to collect a ton of samples. We didn't know how well they would store. So we did a slightly different premise where we basically showed the dog what they were looking for. We then let them go search where there was something very similar in the lineup. And then we just wanted to see if they could tell those two things apart. And for this study, what those samples actually were, were the breath and sweat taken from a person when they came in to the testing room, when they were relaxed. And we say that they were relaxed because they both did a self-assessment on how they were feeling. And we had their heart rate and blood pressure measured because they were hooked up to this machine that we call a biopack that measures those things continuously. And then we made them do really, really hard mental arithmetic. Ah, okay, that's how you stress them out. <laughs> so they had to count backwards from 9,000 in units of 17. Oh, so, like 9,000 minus 17. We were there, you know, kind of not saying particularly helpful things. So it was a script from a validated study that did the initial mental
1: arithmetic task. So, it wasn't a particularly pleasant experience. <laughs> they had to do that for three minutes. I think I'm already stuck at 8,900 and. 83 and then I got distracted yeah I think yeah
0: yeah, so minus 17 (laughs) so I think the first one's 8883 and then after that I don't know any of the other I have the list so I was (laughs) yeah it wasn't great but again everyone perceives tasks differently right so we did have a few people who just didn't find it stressful we had a couple of kind of people who just great at math who probably experienced challenge I should have mentioned before we were really wanting to look at threat specifically because threat is the stress that people often are referring to when they talk about stress generally. I think it would be really cool in future to look at whether dogs can discriminate between those two different types. But as a starting point, we wanted to look at threat. So the people had to report that they had found the task stressful. They had to increase at least two points on this self-assessment scale that went from zero to 10. And their blood pressure and their heart rate had to increase during the task. And all three of those measures had to take place for us to use their samples. And then in this quasi-match sample setup, basically I would show the dogs the stress that was their target. And then I would add in the person's sample from four minutes before at baseline. So it's from the same person. They were all within subject studies. So really the only thing that had changed in those four minutes was hopefully this metabolic stress response or the psychological stress response, which then triggers all of those physiological changes. And by doing that, we could really control... For any other issues, you know, they were in the same room, the ambient air was the same, there was only a four minute time difference. So the fact that the dogs were able to discriminate between those two samples would really suggest that something had changed in the odor profile linked to this stress response.
1: Great. Okay. So what
0: were your results? How did the dogs do? Yeah, so I should have said too. So these were all pet dogs from the local community. And it was a really fun project around because we had such great dog owners. They were willing to bring their dog in as volunteers every week for training. The process of training did take quite a while because, again, we only had the dogs for one hour per week. Okay. They weren't on site or working dogs. They were pet dogs. So we did have quite a few dogs that started generic training. The way that this would work, you have to make sure that the dog is very good at this matching game before we ever showed them stress. Because if I just started with this stress test and they weren't very good, I wouldn't know if that's because they couldn't smell the difference or just because they didn't really understand what I was asking. So we had many steps before we got to this final testing of like matching human odors, but not stress. And the dogs had to be getting over 80% in all of those training trials to make sure that they were proficient before we got them onto the testing sample. So only four dogs ever got good enough at the pre-stages to be shown stress. But all four of the dogs who were ever shown stress, they did incredibly well. They got 94% correct over 720 trials. And those trials described 36 individual samples. So 36 pre and post stress samples. So it was pretty extraordinary. We taught them the premise, but we hadn't ever trained them using stress. So it was cool. We got to see their very first response and every single dog from the first time that we showed it to them were able to discriminate those things. So it does suggest that something about becoming stressed had
1: changed people's odors. So back to that biodetection paradigm, the dogs had a lineup of odors and they could correctly identify the one from the person after they'd done the math quiz or whatever. Yes, so, even
0: though okay. also present in that lineup was that same person's breath taken only four minutes before.
1: Cool, very cool. Okay, well, we are talking to Clara Wilson about her research looking at dogs' ability to detect stress in humans using olfaction. You're listening to the Good Dog Pod, and we will be right back.
0: Make sure to visit the Good Dog merch store, which has tote bags, t shirts, sweatshirts, hats, and more. We hope you can proudly wear this merch not only in support of Good Dog, but in support of dog breeders everywhere, because together we're stronger. Plus, Good Dog Pod listeners get 15% off. Visit shop.gooddog.com today and use the code GDP15.
1: And we are back. Today we're talking to researcher Clara Wilson. She recently published her research looking at dogs' ability to discriminate between human odors when they're just sitting around and then after they've been stressed by a math task. And turns out dogs can discriminate the difference. So just to hop right back in. So we know what your study found. These dogs were able to very accurately identify the VOCs, the volatile odors that humans were emitting from stress. And hopefully the dogs found the task challenging and not stressful, but that's like another study, right? But what does this mean for our dogs at home? Like, can they tell us when we're stressed do they know when we're stressed like do you think that without the training dogs can detect these changes what do you think about what our dogs at home are picking up on?
0: Yeah, so I think that that's super interesting and obviously where we want the application of this work to go. I mean, it needs to be very clear that the actual paper, because it was a biodetection study, we can't directly make any claims about dogs in the home just because it was outside the scope of this specific paper. Having said that, I think the fact that the dogs weren't Explicitly trained on the stress odor during training. The very first time they saw the baseline and stress was at testing. And their initial response was that they found those things easy to discriminate between. I think that does suggest that kind of untrained dogs probably can perceive a difference. However, what that means in terms of how they interpret and understand it is, again, a different question. So it's probably likely, again, although we don't know for sure, but I would be confident in suggesting that a lot of dogs physically can detect a change. It's just how they perceive that change is probably affected by a lot of other factors. So I think in a real life setting, dogs are using a lot of contextual cues. We know that they're very good at picking up on body language, tone of voice, things like our breathing rate probably help them understand a situation. However, just this study, I think, also promotes the role of odor. And I think that's something that is traditionally understudied. You know, we're so visual. um, It's hard to conceptualize this whole world of odor that's happening alongside all of the things that we're seeing. So I think if anything, this study should just promote, you know, don't forget about the smell part. (laughs) And, you know, for future studies, try and include that as something that might be measured alongside Mm. the visual things. But I think to measure how untrained dogs are interpreting the smell is the next key step. And I think those things like the previous study that we were talking about earlier, where they were just looking at how dogs responded. I think that's probably at the moment kind of the best method that we have for that. So I think trying to combine kind of the control element from these types of studies and then looking at the untrained response would be a really cool way to start answering those questions.
1: Right, because I guess one question that came up for me is like, you had four dogs that were successfully able to to be trained to do the task, right? So the other dogs, I assume you recruited other dogs, and they just couldn't get past
0: the... So yeah, so this is the interesting issue. This is a big drawback of the biodetection paradigm, is that To train the dogs to be operant on the task is what is difficult. So to be clear, those other dogs never saw any stress or relaxed samples. They weren't failing at discriminating between the smells. We were getting them to discriminate between odors that we know have differences. So we know there that that's not an issue to discriminate. That's an issue to do the behavioral chain of behaviors. You know, it's a pretty demanding task. You have to send them away. They need to search independently. They need to perform a trained final response. And then they need to do it another 20 times in a row. (laughs) because we need statistical significance from repeated trials to do binomial tests. So I am also very interested in what are we actually asking of the dogs to get this data? And I think that the real issue with this paradigm is that you get a huge attrition because it's a working dog. You know, at this point, this is a working dog role. And as we know from the field of working dogs, the success rate isn't great because it's hard to ask these dogs to do specific tasks. So That's a definite drawback. You can't collate a bunch of data because the dogs are highly trained by the time that they're actually able to see samples. But importantly, the other dogs never were looking at our samples of interest. So it's not like, oh, we don't know. They might not have actually been able to tell the difference. They never got the chance to see it. They were doing much easier modifications and were just disinterested in doing it. And, you know, we never want it works out great for the dogs, too, because they really have to enjoy it to want to take part because if the dog isn't interested in doing the behaviors, then they're not going to give us data anyway. So it kind of worked out. Only (laughs) the dogs that really enjoyed it were able to actually get to testing.
1: You have enthusiastic volunteers. And again, they're experiencing challenge, not necessarily a threat. So yeah. do you think that it stresses our dogs out if we're stressed, like if they can detect, maybe they don't know the meaning of the change in our odor. I and mean, this is I know like you have not researched this, but just like, do you think about these questions with Eddie? Like, does he pick up on your stress? Yeah. So I think that's a really good question. And I think there's lots of factors to
0: it. So the studies like the previous study that we were talking about, when they were looking at the fear sweat that's really coming at it from this emotional contagion side of things. And those studies do suggest that closely living species do experience some kind of emotional contagion, so kind of a transference of emotion between species. And obviously, we didn't look at untrained responses. Interestingly, our dogs, because they'd been trained They get a click and a reward when they find the target odor, right? So our dogs were very excited when they found the target sample, which was the (laughs) sample, which again is anecdotal, but I think does raise the question of training and all of this. So Mm -hmm. the original studies, for example, on diabetic alert dogs came out of anecdote of people with diabetes saying, my dog's acting funny, and then I have an experience of low blood sugar. But the behaviors that the dogs were doing weren't our nice, trained, diabetic alert dog behaviors of coming over and helping or fetching alert kits or fetching blood testing kits. The dogs were often showing aggression. They were growling at the owner or they were running and hiding. And again, it's hard to know. Is this the contagion where, you know, it's thought to be kind of implicit and they're just picking up on emotions and feeling the same way through contagion or is that a learned response you know does the owner when they're in a low blood sugar level act differently are they more likely to move differently you know the same was found with epileptic alert dogs there was issues with untrained dogs showing aggression is that because they find the presence of seizure movements frightening So I think that there's a lot to be said about this issue of learned experience as well as just emotional contagion. It's very possible that whenever I'm very stressed, I'm going to be more likely to be short with my dog or when they would approach me and I might play with them. I'm going to say, no, lie down. You know, so all of these things also play a role in are they now just learning to associate that smell With poor outcomes. Right. Something bad is about to happen. Exactly. So I would love to kind of untangle that a bit more too. But at the moment, those are questions that we really need to delve into of like, if there is this contagion response, how can we mediate it? Where is it coming from? But for the role of dogs actually trained to respond to stress, there have only been a couple of preliminary studies. Because obviously the concept of dog supporting, for example, people with psychiatric disorders or post-traumatic stress is you're asking them to be around people who are very stressed. And if dogs are experiencing high levels of contagion, it really raises questions about the welfare of those dogs. So I think that it's a really pertinent area and one that needs to be explored. The very preliminary evidence so far is that the dogs who have been trained with counter conditioning, much like a diabetic alert dog would be trained of, you've smelt this odor of stress. They're not actually doing it through odor yet. But, you know, you've seen someone experiencing stress through visual cues go perform, you know, go lean on them, go do the behaviors, whatever it is that they've been trained to do, those dogs seem to not be showing the negative signs of stress, whereas the untrained dogs are. So they did that through measuring cortisol. And there's obviously issues in all of those measures. But it does seem to be in line with what we've seen from other types of working dog roles that I think if the training is done well, we can change this slightly potentially frightening or aversive event into something really positive, you know, you get your big party, you get your reward, then there may be scope there to mediate that effect. So there's lots of work to be done.
1: Yeah, definitely. When I was kind of diving into your research history, I contacted you to talk about the stress study, but then I found out that you'd done the work with diabetic alert dogs and that you had looked at some of those trained and untrained behaviors when their owner's blood glucose was out of the target range. And It does bring up a lot. You brought up some ethical questions. And, you know, I think the big question too is like, what does this research tell us about, you know, the human-dog relationship and how we kind of co-evolved together and how should we use dogs? And is it their responsibility to help us with these things? Or, you know, should we be taking advantage of their abilities to help us? And do you have any thoughts on those mini questions? Yeah. So I think again, it's
0: kind of is a big it depends answer. Yeah. I think that it can be done well and I think it can be done poorly. I think I've certainly experienced dogs, especially when we're getting into the realm of olfaction, like we know from other studies looking at the impacts of enrichment that dogs' noses are often underutilized. You know, we really focus on things like exercise and walking, but then the walk might be a brisk 20-minute walk around the block where the dog isn't allowed to sniff. Pulling the leash, like come on. <laughs> yeah, So I think focusing on utilizing a dog's sense of smell can be enriching. And I think that depending on the service role, there is more and less required of the dog. So again, I think those factors play a part too. And it also really depends on the person's expectations. So the diabetic alert study was great because I got to go around and meet all of these people and get a lot of kind of qualitative data that is still anecdotal, because I never formally wrote it up. But I got to hear a lot of people's experiences. And I think that the thing that often also happens when we're trying to quantify it through science is like, are they as good as a glucose monitor? Like, are they going to compare to the machines? But a lot of these people expectations were like, I have a really difficult illness, it really impacts my day to day life. If my dog can catch one episode, I will be over the moon. You know, I'm not, holding them to this incredibly high standard. The dogs seemingly enjoy this kind of operant task of, oh, I've smelt that smell. I'm going to go do my thing. I get this huge puppy party. So I think that there's definitely scope there for the relationship to work in quite a nice symbiotic way. But again, I think that really depends on the training methods, the expectations of the human. And a lot of those things really vary depending on the type of partnership what we're asking the dog to do. So yeah, I think unfortunately there's no clear cut answer there.
1: (laughs) I think you gave a very good answer. So I know you just started a new job at Penn. So are you going to keep doing this kind of research or what's next on your research horizon? Yeah. So I've just started at the
0: Penn Vet Working Dog Center, which is this really unique and cool place because They work to place working dogs, especially for things like urban search and rescue and those types of jobs. But they are at the same time a research center. So there's just this wealth of information because every single training session, every activity they do is recorded on video and they take data from it. So That's kind of exciting to me because I think there's just this huge wealth of information that can be looked at from a scientific standpoint. So I've got a lot of scope there to look into different avenues, especially in terms of things like Working dog behavior, working dog welfare, all of these types of questions. So, I'm really looking forward to being staying in the working dog world for sure. And I personally love all of the biodetection and human health aspect too. Penn is doing a lot of great projects there, working with Penn Medicine and these different hospitals and different projects in that sense too. So, I hope I can keep up with the kind of the medical detection side of things as well.
1: (laughs) Very nice. Well, in the future, when you have a new publication, we can have you back and you'll be happy. <laughs> so I am very, so. Thank you very- <laughs> so before we wrap up, tell us a little bit about Eddie.
0: Yes. So Eddie is very interesting. He came to us as a 13 month old. So He was actually deemed unsuitable for medical alert work. He is unsuitable for medical alert work. (laughs) He's a lovely, lovely dog. But I always say, like, because he would have been providing assistance for someone else, I'm like, he needs assistance (laughs) from us. (laughs) He was quite fearful. He continues to be, I would Mm -hmm. describe, as a pessimist. If there's anything novel, he will interpret it initially as frightening and then will kind of come around. But he's just great. He works great for our family because he lives with my parents at the moment and they live out in the countryside. So we're really not asking as much of him as he was being asked before and he's really thriving. So it's really great as well to see that kind of adaptation to a new environment can really change behavior and outlook. So yeah, he loves to learn things though. Like you can tell that he kind of came from a working background in that sense because he's really eager to do stuff and he loves to learn new tricks and he's a great dog to practice new things on because he's very engaged. But yeah, I'm pleased that he has found this kind of more relaxing environment because I think it's much more to his taste.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he had a career change. Yeah, his
0: career is very much now just relaxing (laughs) and being a good boy at home.
1: (laughs) Very nice. Very nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and telling us about your research and good luck at your new position. I'm sure we'll be hearing more about your work in the future. So thanks again. Great. Thank you so much.